This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Mario Martinez. Mario is a clinical neuropsychologist who lectures worldwide on how cultural beliefs affect health and longevity. He's the founder of Biocognitive Science, a new paradigm that identifies complex discoveries of how our cultural beliefs affect our immune, nervous, and endocrine systems. Which sounds true, Mario has created a six-session audio learning program called The Mind-Body Code, How the Mind Wounds and Heals the Body, where he invites the listener to discover the dynamic interplay between thoughts, the body, and cultural history in order to master the creation of wellness and fulfillment. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mario and I spoke about biocognition, the mind-body connection in a cultural context. We also talked about how, according to Mario, culture creates biology. We also talked about three archetypal wounds that Mario has identified appear in cultures throughout the world, the wounds of abandonment, betrayal, and shame, and what their antidotes might be, and how to access those antidotes through what Mario calls healing fields in the body. And finally, we talked about the concept of the drift and how to navigate chaos with uncertainty as our guide. Here's my intriguing conversation with Mario Martinez. Mario, your work with the Mind-Body Code covers many different topics, but today in our conversation, I'd like to focus on this notion of empowerment and how people can feel more empowered in their lives. And I want to begin by reading a quote from you and having you comment on it. So here's the quote. Change cannot be sustained unless the individual has the self-worthiness to accept the potential benefits gained from the change. That's uh, yes, that, that's that's a, a complex <laughs> statement, but uh, but I, I, what I what I mean there is that uh, you know the word empowerment is, is used all over, and and people have different meanings. But I, I I look at it from what the actual meaning does to the biology, especially to the immune system, based on the research that's been done. And and I simply I try to take very complex uh, discoveries in science and and complex theories and practice and make them very simple, very applicable, because that the nature is very simple, although it unfolds in a very complex way. But to uh, to define empowerment, I look at empowerment as a challenge, a challenge that you have on a road to something, a road to an objective, and in in that challenge, you need first you need the resources to be able to uh, achieve that challenge. And you need the sense of worthiness that the energy that you're putting into it is uh, is going to be validated. And one of the things that I see especially in, in, the, in the work world, especially in, in the organizational um, businesses that, that I see, is that it's not stress. It's not, that's not what makes people sick. That disempowerment is what makes them sick. So, for example, if you have a responsibility for something, whether it's in a relationship or in uh, working for a, a big corporation, and you have responsibility, but you don't have authority to actually apply whatever it is that you need to do, people begin to get sick. They, they're disempowered. 
and, and I'll explain that how the immune system works for that, but basically not having the resources. And number two, not having meaning in what you're doing, whether it's a relationship or a job, not, have, not knowing what the meaning is, not knowing that there's a connection with something. So if you take those two things and you say no, no resources to overcome a challenge and no meaning in what I'm doing, right there you have defined disempowerment. And then the opposite, the opposite would be true, which is having the resources and having the meaning of what you're doing. But let's dig in a little bit more to this concept of having the self-worthiness to accept the potential benefits that might be gained from the change. How does one develop that self-worthiness? Well, the first part is to see how, <clears throat> how we don't have it and how to, how to fix it. What, what happens, first we have to look at, at, at our biology in a, in a different way. We, we separate mind and body, and, and we think that words are, are some symbols and the, and the physical is something um, uh, of substance, but it doesn't work that way. We, from day one, we're, we, we first hear words, and they don't mean anything. Then they begin to uh, have meaning. They begin to connect it, the breast of the mother and the hunger and all those things. But those symbols are embodied. Those symbols become biology. That's why when you say to somebody, you're not very smart, and you, uh, and you shame that person, the immune system responds as if you have a wound. You, you, you get inflammation, what's called pro-inflammatory products. So they have meaning. Then you have what I call the, uh, the cultural editors, people important in your culture with a context, which are your parents and, and at home, teachers at school. And those people begin to give you an image of you that may not be actually who you are. They may say to you, uh, either good or bad, they may say you're very good at math, you're bad at following directions, you're bad in relationships, and those words are incorporated, and a person develops a concept of self. A, a, for example, you can't shame a child till they can see themselves in the mirror and say, that's me. When they have an identity, you can shame them, but before that, you can't. So therefore, you have a, a self that's been gradually developed, and that self validates the things that, that they're told. You validate the goodness or the badness. You're bad with directions, then you validate that, and any time that you do something bad with directions, you go, ah, oh, there we go, I'm bad with directions, or if you're good with math. So that's a shaping, that it's a biosymbolic shaping that we have. And then gradually it begins to build a self that, that has a sense of worthiness or a self that doesn't have a sense of worthiness. It doesn't because of what the self-image that that, that that person learned is is not very valuable, then therefore what happens is that if good things happen to them, their nervous system, the immune system, the endocrine system responds as if you're seeing a lion because this tremendous turbulence is not compatible with the state of being. It's not compatible with what you would consider normal. And that's why you see people who achieve their life dreams and they get sick or they die or they retire and they go to that wonderful home and six weeks later, cancer. Too much for that, for that sense of worthiness or lack of worthiness. So it's a building... That it's a building, what I call consciousness. It's an operating consciousness that defines who you are. And then, unfortunately or fortunately, we confirm that in our world. So we have a, a very selective perception based on our neural maps of who we are. So if we say we're good, then we look for things to confirm that we're good, and we constantly get evidence. But it's very biased evidence. Uh, and but if you're bad, then you find evidence that says, "There we go. I'm bad," and "There we go. I'm bad." And then you create horizons that only tell you, for bad people, only bad things can happen. If something good happens, it's a complete turbulence. And that's when people begin to respond with uh, running away from the, from the goodness to get back to what I call known misery. Better to be in known misery than, than in unknown joy. So before you can accept those good things, you have to have that worthiness. You have that sense of worthiness, that says to you, yes, I'm worth it, not intellectually, but but in a very embodied way, I'm worth this good thing that's happening to me, and you don't get sick. So Mario, let's just take this slow for a moment, because when I think of myself, and I think of most of the people I know, there's some sense of unworthiness inside of us, some sense that even when wonderful things are happening, it's hard to take it in. So how do you help that person who has that and says, yes, I, I admit it, if I were really to tell the truth, some part of me doesn't feel worthy of the empowerment that I talk about wanting. Yes. 
Well, first going to uh, going to the to the culture because the culture is so subtle. That's what shapes you. And one of the things that I do, and this is really experiential, so to get to the point, uh, I ask people if I'm doing a, a workshop or, or something for an, an organization, uh, let me let me show you what what culture is all about. So I'll ask them, um, what uh, are you a um, are you a, a fair person with your friends? And they raise their hands. Are you a good parent? And they raise their hands. But I ask them, um, are you uh, beautiful? Nobody raises their hand. Are you brilliant? Nobody raises their hand. Why? Because the culture tells you what you can and cannot accept. And what they teach you is that pseudo-humbleness. If I say, I love your hair, oh, well, I haven't done anything with it. I love your car. Yes, I needed a car because I see it here in Uruguay quite a bit. People buy a car and they give you a 10-minute explanation of why they bought it. So by when that shaping that you get will then determine whether you can accept something or not without the excuses or without the uh, explanations about the goodness that happens to you. Fortunately, there are some people who get that kind of validation. And when, some, when good things happen to them, they say, oh, great, this is it. I deserve this. This is, this is me. But just like some people in, in the example that I give you can't accept that they're brilliant or can't accept that they're attractive or beautiful inside or whatever, then... If you can't accept it, then it's not going to be a reality. So how do you help people like that? Well, first, identify what kind of wounds they have, what kind of things they were taught that wounded them. And and we've talked before, the the, the three wounds that I, I've identified in, in all cultures are archetypal because I see them in all cultures. I see them in Africa, I see them in, in the Philippines, all over. And you can only be wounded those three ways, abandonment, betrayal, or shame. And each of those wounds is so interesting, has a, a different physiological response. So what happens is that if those wounds become your your um, uh, executioner, they become your, your inquisitor, constantly beating you up, and you're having a good day, and all of a sudden something happens in this downer, and you don't realize what happened, and it's that wound coming up that says to you, you were abandoned, therefore you're not worthy. You were shamed, therefore you're not worthy. Uh, you were betrayed, therefore you're not worthy. And then what happens is that you learn that intimate language and you paradoxically speak it fluently with your co-authors. So if you've been abandoned, you either abandon or look for, for abandonment because that's the fluency that you know. That's a language that you know, even though it may not serve you well. So we do methods of with deep relaxation and, and contemplative kinds of ways we get people to the wound, we have them identify it where it's manifested in the body. But then, to fix that, each of the wounds has a, a what I call a, a healing field. So let's say that you have an, an abandonment wound. Well, the, the healing field, the, the antidote to that is commitment, a commitment consciousness, and, and I'll explain it in a minute. Uh, then if it's betrayal, loyalty, and shame, honor. It's so interesting that we're beginning to do some research so you can see how powerful it is. We know now that shame has been studied in psychoimmunology causes inflammation. I mean, when, when you're shamed, you notice that people turn red, and if you measure their interleukins and other kinds of uh, uh, pro-inflammatory products, you'll see that they're high. But now an anti-inflammatory, and this is what we're testing, is honor. If you enter an honor consciousness, you actually create a psychoneurological change by entering that state. And how do you do it? Let's say an example, just a very simple example. You walk into a place, let's say a, a, a conference, or, or you're having a meeting, and your boss speaks shame fluently. And you walk in and say, Tammy, there you go again. I can always count on you uh, 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 being late or something like that. And all of a sudden you feel this incredible um, emotion overcoming you. You turn red and, and you can't figure out why such a little word, a little thing that happened has that effect on you. And, and the reason is that you're living out your whole history. You're bringing out your whole history of shame into the moment. What do you do? Very simple. You stop. You, you realize that you're being shamed or you're seeing it as shaming and you see where you manifest it in your body and there are five portals of, of um, health that I talk about. Anyway, you identify it and you simply breathe into it to accept it, that this is what you're feeling. And immediately, after you've done the exercise of, uh, of learning the, uh, the healing field, then you go to, to, the, to the consciousness of, of honor. How do you do that? 
by going to a memory unrelated to what happened, to a memory of something that you did that was honorable. Because, you see, we store information physiologically in every way. We, we just don't store the thought. We store the immunology that was happening at the time, the, the nervous process that was happening. So when you bring out the memory, you bring the cluster of good and bad things. So you bring in, uh, I had a patient who had an inflammation, actually a problem with uh, arthritic inflammation, and his, his proud moment or his honor moment was when one day a bully was going to beat up this other kid, and he stood up and he protected that kid from being hurt. And that had an honorable effect on him. Well, then you bring that out and you allow that to overwhelm your body, the honor, and immediately it shifts you from disempowerment to empowerment. And then what would be the honorable thing to do? Maybe to say that a person privately, look, uh, what do I need to do to uh, correct the situation? I wish that you would speak to me privately. Anything that you think that needs to correct the situation in an honorable way, it changes the biology and it changes the potential for you to get sick. Now, Mario, you have said quite a lot so far in our short conversation, so I'm going to try to slow it down a little bit and make sure I'm following all of the things you're saying. Of course, yes. So, first of all, you know, we were talking about why some people feel worthy and how you need to feel worthy to really make big changes in your life. And we were talking about how most people don't have that worthiness. And you brought up these three, you called them archetypal wounds that you've noticed in cultures across the world. And I'm curious, only three, all different things that could have happened to us in our early childhood, you put in these three different buckets. How did you come up with this? Because as as I was, and that's a great question, as I was looking for specific ways of people being wounded, I was able to subsume everything under those three. Uh, and, and, and they're so, um, the ab- abandonment, for example, is the most primitive. You can abandon a child physically and they die. You can shame them and they don't die. Or you can betray them and they don't die. But betrayal is the most, and it happens with animals. Animals, when, when an an, and you know, animals are, are very uh, self-sufficient, but if, a ba- if an animal is abandoned, even when they're adults, they're abandoned from the tribe, they start getting sick, and, 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 and in many cases they die. So, so these are implicit biological or biocognitive processes that we have. And why is it that the immune system responds to them in such a powerful way? So I haven't been able to find any, any other uh, wound that it cannot be subsumed in those three, which is you know, good news because at least it's only three that we have, have to work with. Now, you just introduced a term, and, and you're the only person that I've heard use this term, biocognitive. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yes, because uh, science has, has separated biology from cognition. They talk about mind-body, and I, I had to invent the word to describe biocognitive means mind-body in a cultural context. We cannot run from our culture, so nothing happens without a, a, a cultural context. So it's an inseparability of mind, which is all our cognitions, our memories, biology, emotions, uh, immunology, everything, and then cultural is the the, uh, the the embracing that we do of a reality. No, no reality is void of of culture. Medicine is cultural, religion is cultural. They have culture components. And what is a culture? A culture has three identifying codes. Any culture, the culture of a, a B cell, a T cell. A, uh, an American, uh, Hispanic, anything. And the three identifying codes are, number one, what are the codes of acceptance? How do I accept this? I know it's a T cell, okay, you're in. You're a B cell, you're out. You're, uh, you're Catholic, you're in. You're not Catholic, you're out, at, at a very basic level. The second code is rejection. What do I reject? What do I not let in? And what are the ways that I don't let in? And even after I let them in, what are the ways that I can get them out? They do that in science. When you say the wrong thing, your the Inquisition comes out just like they did with uh, Galileo when he said that uh, the Earth was not the center of the universe. The, the Inquisition is still alive. And the third is the language. What language do you speak? We're speaking English now. But if somebody speaks Chinese, we're excluded. We don't have a communication system. Well, interestingly, the cells also have cultures of how they communicate, what they reject, and what they accept. That's the most basic definition of a culture. And it's biocognitive in that sense that it's mind-body, 
and culture. Okay, and so I'm going to keep going here with this unfolding of these three archetypal wounds. So we've briefly touched on shame, abandonment, and betrayal. But let's pick abandonment. As you said, this is very, very core. And I think many, many people have a sense that something happened at some point in their childhood where they felt deeply left alone and were suffering in some sense, that sense of being isolated and, you could say, abandoned. And you propose that there is a healing field, you use this term, and I want you to explain that more, of something called commitment as the antidote here that we could shift into if we find ourselves triggered and feeling abandoned in some situation. So talk me through how that might work for somebody. The, uh, I call it a healing field because uh, one thing that, uh, that I emphasize in biocognition is that we have co-authors. We didn't learn things on our own. We have co-authors, people, their parents, and people that go along on the journey that actually co-authored what our, our reality. And we have co-authors of abandonment, and we have co-authors of commitment. So the field is one that, as you, as you bring back commitment, because, again, the, we archive the good news is we archive information that we can bring out, and especially if it's good information, it'll, it has almost like a cleansing, recontextualizing effect when you bring it out. Um, so if you have, again, the, that aband- and abandonment is usually felt as cold. It even has temperatures. When you feel abandoned, you feel cold. Actually, you're cold because your blood is, is, is receding. You're constricting your, your vascular system and, you're, and, and is receding. It's almost like preparing yourself to, for, for, uh, uh, for a loss. And then when that happens, the, you have a tremendous amount of information of commitment consciousness, things that you have done for commitment. You could, you could go back uh, to when you were 12 and you say, I committed myself to getting a good grade in math and I worked hard and I did it. That's a commitment. That has physio, that's why it's biocognitive. It has biocognitive consequences, and not just the memory, but when you learn to, and when we teach people to actually tune in, to embody the information so it doesn't stay up in the head, you could say, oh, yes, I was, I was really committed, but you don't go to the body, then it's lost. But if you embody it and you see, just like when you see what's negative, when you see what's positive, what's happening is you're changing physiology there. But you're also biocognitively, because it's not just physiology, it's biocognition and biology. You're changing it. So what happens if you continue to do that? Every time that you go into an abandonment consciousness, you go in and you recontextualize it with commitment consciousness. Gradually what happens is that self-worthiness that we were talking about begins to change. Because the good news is we can change everything, including the expression of genes. What we were taught is totally wrong. In neuropsychology, it was taught that after a year, uh, you don't make any, any, uh, any more uh, improvements when you have brain damage. Not true. None of those things are true because they were based on very re- reductionistic biology that is no longer applicable, although they still use it in conventional. So that shifting of consciousness requires uh, an, an investment in, in going back to your memories and expressing uh, some of those negativities, but also then seeing who are the actual co-authors that are still uh, responding to that, who are still speaking shame fluently with me. And you could go to a, a relative, and all of a sudden you, or not all of a sudden, but gradually you have become more uh, more honorable, and, and, and you live honor-conscious, and all of a sudden you go to your that co-author, and you say, you know, I'm really feeling good about myself, and... Well, you shouldn't feel so good. Look how you failed in 1944 or, you know, whatever. And, and they bring you down because that's all they can speak. And the key here is that just because you're making changes, your co-authors may not be ready for that change. So you have to be aware that then you give those co-authors the amount of honor that they can handle and don't go beyond that or the amount of love that they can handle and don't go beyond that because you'll toxify them. Love, uh, love can toxify. Good things can toxify people who have very, very small um, uh, areas of, of goodness within them or worthiness within them. Okay, now I want to make sure I understand what you mean by embodying the healing field. So let's just for the moment stick with this abandonment example, this abandonment archetypal wound. And say somebody's going through a process in their life where they're going through a breakup of some kind, a relationship breakup, and they feel quite abandoned. How do they make sure that when they 
call on this healing field of commitment that they're doing so in an embodied way, not just as an idea? Yes, that, that's a great question. And, and if it's not done right, it doesn't work. Um, you, you first identify where you manifest, which is a way of saying embodying. Let, let's, let's use a specific example so it'll be clear, because I think that's a very important question that you ask. You feel you're in a relationship, and that person, quote, unquote, abandons you. All right. So you begin to feel the abandonment. You begin to, oh, this person left me after all these years. And then how do you embody where am I manifesting this, this thought and this, and this emotion, this biocognition? And you realize that you, your chest is tense and your stomach is, is beginning to, to, uh, to make very unusual sounds. Well, that's how you're embodying the abandonment. And rather than trying to get rid of it and say, I don't want to feel this, I'm happy, I'm fine, that's superficial positive psychology that doesn't work. It's naive. You go there and you go in. That's where the Buddha say you, you enter the turbulence. And you don't try to change it. You don't try to make it better. You just go in to embody, to, to, to enact, to live what, you, what your body is doing. And you do it and you breathe. You always remember that you have to breathe from your stomach slowly. And you embody it. And you'll see that, that it doesn't last more than a few minutes because you're paying attention to it. And once you do that, then you take a deep breath and you say, okay, now let me bring the antidote here. And let me bring back, just like you're having memories of what that person did to you, uh, let's say an hour ago, you can have memories of what happened 10 years ago. And you bring back the memory of commitment. This is my commitment. It's usually commitment to yourself or commitment to something that, that's worthy. And you bring that consciousness, and how do you embody it? All of a sudden, you begin to feel uh, like your, your chest is expanding, like you're feeling a sense of, of, of serenity, uh, like your legs are feeling um, a, a more sensitivity, a, a manifestation in the body. That's embodying. And then you breathe into that. And as you breathe into that, what you're doing is you're shifting biology at every level. You're shifting at a level. You, you can see it with, actually, you can see it with functional MRIs. Uh, that's actually the, the brain function in vivo. You can see changes like that when you do contemplative kinds of uh, processes. So is it fair to say that if somebody focused on the healing fields of honor, commitment, and loyalty, they would radically increase their self-worthiness, and then they would be a candidate for the kind of empowerment you're talking about. Yes, I would say so. It doesn't happen overnight because uh, we have neuromaps. Uh, one of the things that happens with the brain is that as you repeat something, it creates more pathways, more neuropathways, and they're called neuromaps. And you have, let's say you're a very negative person, you have a lot of neuromaps that can focus on negativity in the world. So that doesn't change overnight. But the good thing is that if it, as you change and you begin to find incompatible neuromaps with the negativity, the body and the mind and, 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 and the spirit and everything that you want to call human has a tendency to reluctantly, to, to, to let, relentlessly, relentlessly look for health rather than, than, than look for, for sickness. The body is constantly looking for health. Um, genetics is only 5-10%. The rest is looking for health. So as you begin to modify, as you recontextualize, not just change one thing for there, but recontextualize, by doing it, then you create new neuromaps. And I'm going just to the uh, neuroscience so you can see that it's very related to, to the biology. And gradually, you begin to reinterpret things. You begin to give different meaning. But then, again, I, have to, I can't overemphasize this. You have to be aware of the co-authors that are maintaining that for you. And what do you do with co-authors? You set limits. You set benign limits. Another way of empowering yourself is by setting benign limits, which says, this is as far as I go. And then you get permission. In, in, in assertiveness, we usually talk about setting limits. There's another part of assertiveness. One is setting the limit, and the other one is giving permission to the other person to not like it and to work through that. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by benign limits, the use of that word benign? Benign limits... Uh, means that that you're not hurting yourself, and you're not hurting somebody. Uh, in, in, for example, if they set a limit that you're going to have to hurt somebody physically, then that's not really benign. But at the same time, benign for you means that if someone is hurting you, then you have to stop that hurting, 
and you have to stop that person. So benign being that it's good for you, that it that it has that it has value for you in in, in a healing way. Uh, in uh, in what the Buddhists call benign indifference, you you set up a you set up a, a boundary, and and I see this in in centenarians in the work that I do with centenarians. Centenarians, thirty percent genetics, seventy percent biocultural, and I call it biocultural because culture creates biology. They know how to set limits. You tell them you, the first thing they say is, "How can I help?" But they don't say, "How can I help?" in a in a, a caretaker way. They say it with with limits. How can I help? What I'd like to inter- in fact, one I asked them, I, "I'd like to interview you." Oh yeah, sure. We uh, I'd like to talk to you. I'd like to learn from you. It's 102 years old. And I said, sure. Uh, when uh, when can I see? He said, well, almost any time. When would you like? And I said, Saturday at at two o'clock. And he looked at me. and said, no. Without even thinking, no. Saturday at two o'clock, I have dancing lesson. I can't do it. That's benign. That's benign boundary. Mm-hmm. If you say, okay, I'll, I'm giving up my joy, and I'm going to go ahead and talk to you. No. I, I made a commitment. Here's a commitment. See, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to go to my dance lesson. I'm not going to change that. Now, if it's an emergency, of course. But we don't do that. We say, oh, okay, well, I'll, 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 I'll do it later, which is a way of devaluing ourselves. You notice when you walk into a restaurant by yourself and they say, only you, only one, as if you know they're expecting somebody else to come with you. Uh, once a month I take myself out to dinner. I dress very nicely and I take myself out to dinner. And no, ma- it doesn't matter what country I go. They'll say, just one? So right there, the culture is saying, what's wrong? There's something missing. So we're being shaped constantly without knowing it. Now, you made a very strong statement, Mario. You said, culture creates biology. And I understand in your work how important cultural ideas are in terms of influencing our biology. But you stated this very definitively. Yes. Yes, and I'll give you an example. Um, the um, the Peruvian culture, Peruvian women, when they have menopause, they call the hot flashes bochorno, which is another word for shame. The shame, they call it. Okay, And we know now that shame causes inflammation. You test Peruvian women for their level of interleukins and other inflammatory products, and they're high. Now, you go to Japan, same, you know, they're women, they're human beings, but in Japan, the cultural interpretation of menopause and the hot flashes is a second spring, an opportunity for wisdom. You check their uh, inflammatory products, and they're normal. That's how a culture can create uh, biology. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, so I've been focusing on this question of empowerment and how we make changes in our life and the importance of self-worthiness in making changes. And part of the reason I really wanted to focus on this theme, Mario, is because I think there's a lot of confusion right now, speaking of the culture, in the culture, related to the whole idea of how we can manifest changes in our life. And I think post the secret many people have been experiencing in the last several years, the reality that it's not enough to simply want something to change and visualize a change, that there's something missing, that there's more to the process of empowerment than that. And I'm curious, we've been talking about it, but if you could help summarize our discussion and really pinpoint for people what's missing when we just visualize a change and want something to be different, but yet it doesn't change. What do we need to make these kinds of changes in our life that we all want to make? 
Well, the first thing, uh, first uh, one of the things you do in science is you go back to how things break, and then how to go back and, and see how they, how you fix them. So, how do things break? We don't get shamed or we don't get abandoned abandoned intellectually. We don't get abandoned intellectually. We we're not we don't say mm, I'm being abandoned. There's a biology that goes with it. So basically, you have a cluster of emotions and physiological changes and the cognition and the thought. So why then do we think that we can just by going to the thought we can change something that requires more than a thought? Because it was it's like trying to change uh, something taking only one of the ingredients. It doesn't work. So if you say I'm a wonderful person, I'm a wonderful person, your biology is not going to go with it because you were shamed not only with words but with what the words did to your biology. It created neuromaps. It created a response to to situations similar to that. So by you saying I'm, I'm worthy and I'm honorable, it's only an intellectual component of many other things that are going on. So you have to then go to the other components and see how you change those neuromaps and see how you change that response. But not, And that's why I call it biocognitive, not just cognitive. Cognition alone doesn't work. It, it doesn't access the total picture. Mm-hmm. And so let's say that somebody wants to make a specific change in their life. Let's just pick something which is something that a lot of people want. They want to make more money. And I'm going to go back to this original quote that I used from you. Change can't be sustained unless the individual has the self-worthiness to accept the potential benefits gained from the change. How does somebody work with being able to accept the benefits of making more money? How do they do this? Yeah, there's a there's a very a simple experiment that you can do so you can see the bound, the, the horizons that we create. You can you can have someone sit uh, and and do any kind of contemplative relaxation or any anything just to, to quiet the mind. And you ask them, okay, imagine now, let's say they make forty thousand dollars a year. Imagine you make forty thousand dollars a year. And now what I want you to do is look at what you're doing with that money, how you're paying bills, and you know, you're creating a context. Uh, but as you're creating the context, there's biology going on too. There's biocognition, not just cognition. And then you tell them, all right, now what I want you to do is multiply that times 10 times. Now you're making $400,000. What are you going to do with that money? And you let them do it for a few minutes, and you have them stop and say, okay, what are you feeling in your body? And you're going you're gonna to see that they're going to feel tension. They're going to feel disruptions because the horizons are being shaken. They're so used to that the reality is around what you can do with $40,000, what you can buy, what you cannot buy, where you can go. And all of a sudden you expand the horizons and you would think, oh, this is great. Your biology has to follow. Your biology is not ready just because you say this is great. So, so you actually feel the stress. You feel the tension. And there are two things, so you can, even with illnesses. So you can see that it's, the worthiness has to do with illness too. An illness has many components. Of course, it has genetic predispositions, not sentencing, but predisposition. It has environmental, uh, what you eat, uh, and, and all that. In addition to that, an illness is learned. You learn an illness, and one of the one of the functions of the illness, in addition to the things that I talked about, is that the illness can allow you to not act on something that you need to act, on something that requires, again, boundaries. You see how boundaries always come up. Something that, that you don't want to do anymore but your culture is so powerfully uh, inducing you to do it that an, Ill- an illness gives you a pass. That's one way. Mm-hmm. And the other is that something's coming up that is so good that you don't feel worthy of it, and you sabotage it to go back to the horizons of your misery. So it has two functions. And I argue that unless you work on those two functions, people will not heal. They may be cured, but they won't be healed. And those two functions, again, one, it allows me to draw a boundary that I'm uncomfortable drawing. And what was the second function that an illness has? The second one is that something good happens that you don't, you don't feel worthy of, and, and it's so turbulent that without you knowing it, you bring it back. People who uh, win the lottery in the U.S., but in other countries, I've been able to verify it in other countries too, they keep it on an average of 18 months. They can't handle it. They either sabotage it, with uh, illness, or they find an accountant that steals their money, or they find somebody at uh, relationships that, that, that takes their money, to bring them back to that level of unworthiness or the level of worthiness that they had before, 
because they couldn't handle the other. So one of the things that I do, I work with executives and people who have a lot of money and people who don't have money, and it's the same thing. They have the same problems. Teaching them that any time that something good happens, you have to deal with it. You have to you have to uh, uh, work with it as if it was bad a uh, bad thing. Why? Because you, turbulence, the brain doesn't know whether it's good or bad. It knows that it's turbulent is different, that you went beyond your field. You went beyond your, your boundaries, and therefore turbulence happens in, in order for you to make a decision to move forward or to go back. Uh, for, for me, anytime anything, anytime any good thing happens, any, especially good things, I stop, I do a meditation, and I do an expansion, what I call expanding the ceilings of abundance. Because if I don't, then it's going to be turbulent. Now, let's actually step into that and try that. So it could be any good thing that's happening. It could be someone coming up and saying, you look beautiful today, or wow, that was so brilliant, or whatever. How can you help somebody right here in this moment work with that turbulence that they might feel in that experience? First, to stop and let that information go to the cortex, because the cortex is the most... uh, sophisticated part of our brain, and we learn these things at a, at a, at a primitive level of the brain, uh, the limbic system and things like that. So the first thing is just ho- wait. It's like if you get angry with somebody, don't respond with your email right away. Let it get to the cortex <laughs> so you can give it reason and so you could process it. Well, somebody says you're beautiful, and instead of saying, oh, no, or thank you very much, with, stop, breathe, process whatever you, you're feeling, and then Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, hold on, Mario. When you say let it go to your cortex, I'm not sure I know how to do that. What do you mean? How do I know okay. I'm doing that? Well, uh, neurophysiologically, you can see it with uh, the uh, MRIs, but how do you do it? By allowing yourself time for that body to process the information without responding reflexively. Reflexively, when you respond reflexively, you're responding from the limbic system, from the very primitive brain. When you Wait, and you allow the cortex, which is the reasoning, the planning, the abstracting. When when you allow that to to mix, then you're giving a biocognitive, just rather than a the bio reflex. And interestingly, so you can see an example: when you are depressed, uh, biologically depressed, your immune system is depressed, not not anthropomorphically, but but it's actually under responding and you start doing a, a, a meditation, you will see that from the, when a person is depressed, the, the right frontal lobe, which is sort of right around the, the forehead, the right side is more active than the left side. When you start meditating and you start doing contemplative practices and relaxation, it goes to the left side. So what it's doing is that that information is going to the left side to get meaning, to get contextual language meaning, and it comes together and it becomes a positive emotion. So, But that has to happen in the cortex. And we tend to respond reflexively because we've done it so much that it's, that it's like a knee-jerk. No thank you or thank you very much without letting the embodiment or the, or the, or the physiological uh, manifestation to happen. And, and what will happen is that, it, let's say that a person's not used to being told that they're beautiful. It could be beautiful inside, outside, doesn't matter. And somebody says, okay, and they're going to, practice a technique and they say i think you're beautiful you have beautiful eyes well what do you do first you're going to feel some tension you breathe and that'll take just a few seconds you don't even have to detach from the person you breathe you realize that there's a little tension you allow it to happen and then you bring gratitude in and the gratitude is something that it's it's an exalted emotion it goes up to the to the cortex very quickly and then when you say thank you very much i appreciate that but since you're not used to even saying that you go back and you pay attention to your body again. How does that feel for me to say thank you instead of me saying, oh, I'm not that beautiful or that kind of thing? Then what you're doing is you're reshaping, you're recontextualizing not only the input but also the output. And gradually you begin to uh, – let me give you an example, a personal example in the culture. I was a kid, and my grandmother taught me that, that you, don't, you don't receive money from friends or from people that you love. If you work for them, you have to do it for free. So I was 12 years old, and the gentleman next door would ask me to cut the grass. And it's a very powerful admonition. And I would cut the grass, and of course I wanted him to pay me. He would pay me $5, and it was a lot of money. So 
he would come over to pay me. I said, oh, no, no, thank you. That's all right. No, thank you. But in, inside I was saying, please put it in my pocket. <laughs> so he would put it in my pocket and say, okay, well, you know, I can't do anything about it. It was an anguishing moment. It was a difficult moment for me to say, yes, yes. I accept. And then what happened when I went into private practice? I had a real hard time charging people. I would forget to, to or I wouldn't, my, my fees wouldn't go up. All of that from the culture admonition that you don't accept money for what you do. So I had to learn this process that I'm telling you. And sometimes people will say, you charge too much. Yeah, you're probably right. I probably do. And you know, we can work something out, or I can refer you to someone else. But these are my fees. And then you stand for what you are worth, or what you believe you're worth. Not just money, but, you know, anything, love, anything. Now, you mentioned this interesting phrase, exalted emotions. What are exalted emotions? The exalted emotions, and, and I'm glad you asked me that, because there's a new... Um, the contemplative uh, neuroscience, Richard Davison and people like that are doing that. The exalted emotions, I don't want to call them the evolved emotions because we don't, we don't evolve, we, we develop, we co-author, we co-create. Uh, exalted emotions are empathy, love, compassion, uh, uh, magna- uh, magnanimous uh, emotions. All of those are the exalted emotions. Those are emotions that we feel at levels of... of, of uh, of high compassion and high love and, and high empathy. And in order to be able to feel that, you have to get out of yourself. It's, it's a, an unselfing and bringing somebody into your field of, of whatever it is. In order for you to feel empathy, you have to get out of yourself and see what that person is experiencing. Uh, and, and if you have, uh, for example, prefrontal lobe uh, damage, you can't go out. And, and, and that's what psych, um, sociopaths, they're incapable or unwilling to experience empathy. Uh, you'll ask them, well, how do, you, how do you feel about you just cut that person? Well, it's their problem. That, that's, that's primitive. Uh, the exalted emotions are you get out of yourself and you bring that person into your field of love. And by the way, the immune system responds real well to that and it has nothing to do with fight or flight. And, and the contemplative neuroscience that I was going to talk to you about is that we have learned for many, many years from the, from the damaged brain. People have a stroke, and if this part doesn't work, then it's no good. And that's what we've learned. But lately, in the last few years, there's some neuroscientists that are beginning to study the healthy brain, especially with the exalted emotions. What happens when a person experiences love? What, what does the brain do? What does the immune system do? What happens when a person feels, uh, for example, you look at somebody that, that you like, a friend or whatever, and you smile? What happens to your immune system? And what we're finding is that from the pathology that we learned, the pathological mode of learning about the brain gave us very little information about the complexity of the brain, the plasticity of the brain, and the ability that it has for, for the resilience and the things that we can do. An example, it was thought that there's a part of the brain that, uh, that can identify faces. And uh, it's, a, it's called a fusiform uh, gyrus. It can identify faces. And when you have damage to that, you can't identify a face. You see your mother's face in a picture, who is that? I don't know. So from a sick brain, from a damaged brain, the conclusion was that part of the brain identifies familiar faces, period. But then Richie Davidson and others begin to look, okay, let's go, let's look at the healthy brain, and especially let's look at the healthy brain of, of people that meditate for many, many years. And they find that that part of the brain not only identifies faces, but it identifies anything that you like and that you do well. So if, for example, you're a painter and you specialize in painting roses, when they show you that, that part of the brain lights up like a Christmas tree. So it's not just for faces. It's for familiar objects that have meaning to you. But you couldn't get that if you studied just a sick brain. It's an example. Mm-hmm. Now, we've been talking a lot about the immune system and how the immune system responds in different situations. And I'm curious from your work, what are the cultural beliefs that are damaging or difficult for the immune system? And then also, what are the cultural beliefs in our time that have a positive impact on the immune system? Okay. Well, first... Uh, I, I've proposed a, a new model of the immune system because the old model doesn't explain these things. It, it looks at, at stress, 
and it looks at cortisol, and it looks at adrenaline and noradrenaline, and that's it, and it stops there. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it really looks at the negative emotions, and the fight or flight is still alive and well. But then when you start studying, just like when you start studying the, uh, the healthy brain, you start looking into the healthy immune system with the exalted emotions, you find that these emotions have nothing to do with fight or flight. I mean, love has nothing to do with fight or flight. And yet what happens when you feel love? Your IgAs go up, your T cells go up, all the things that have nothing to do with fight or flight. So therefore, you have an immune system that actually is a, it confirms, it's a biosymbolic, symbols becoming biological, it confirms the consciousness that you live rather than a fight or flight battle. And the reason that it became a fight or flight, science brings in the projections of the person who developed the science. And, uh, and one of the founders of, the immune, of, of discovering the immune system, um, El, El, uh, Mishnikov, back in the early 1900s, discovered, he, he was with uh, he was, uh, Christmas uh, with his son, and in the Christmas tree he had a, pulled out a little uh, pine, and he uh, pinched uh, a... Uh, a larva of a of a um, an animal, and uh, and he the next day he saw it and he saw that it had moving things around. He saw it on the microscope and uh, um, and he saw that there were moving things. And he said, "Oh, those things are taking the infection away." But in those days they thought that which are macrophages. In those days they thought that those little things actually promulgated the, the illness. They would take the infection and take it all over the body. I mean, look at the science of the day, not, not that long ago. And he said, no, it's really not that. The, 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 these, these little cells are actually cleaning out. But what happened, Meshnikov suffered from depression, just like Nietzsche. He and Nietzsche were born around the same time, one year apart. They both inten- intended uh, suicide several times. So Meshnikov's world was a battle fighting death. So what does he anthrop- anthropomorphically do with the immune system? A battling system to fight the bad things that are going out there, the, 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 all the pathogens and all the bad things. And I wondered if a woman would have discovered it if she would have given it that kind of anthropomorphic uh, interpretation. But you see, that's the interpretation that was given. So if you give it that interpretation, you don't look at anything other than fighting. But what happens if you get the exalted emotions in there and they start showing that it's actually working better than anything else you could do, then you find that the immune system is not uh, a fighter, a warrior. The immune system is a confirming biosymbolic process of the life or the experience and the consciousness that you presented. Okay, so let's just slow down for one second there, Mario. A confirming biosymbolic process. Can you explain that to me? I don't understand that, a confirming yes. biosymbolic okay. process. Uh, symbols are biological because they, they create biology. An example, uh, George Solomon, he was my mentor, and he was one of the pioneers in psychoneurology. Uh, he found that men who are HIV positive, he was able to, to do psychological testing and see their level of assertiveness. Level of assertiveness, that's, that's a, bi- a psychological process. And as you know, the, the virus, the HIV virus, specifically attacks T cells, more specifically CD4 cells, those are T, uh, um, helper cells. And he found a correlation between the level of assertiveness that those men had and their T cells. So the, the men who were more assertive had more T cells and had a higher probability of living longer. And more research has been done now that, that men and women that, that actually forgive the person who infected them have higher immunity than people who don't. How do you explain that with a warrior model? It doesn't work. It's a, it's a, a, a symbolic, biosymbolic, a biosymbolic confirming system of whatever you put out. Okay. So given this view of the immune system, coming back to my original question, what cultural beliefs do you think promote health with our confirming biosymbolic process known as the immune system, and which cultural ideas are damaging to our health? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, and I think it, it's been really good for me to travel all over and to, to look at different cultures because we get very ethnocentric and we think that the immune system is only American. 
or whatever it is that you're studying. Uh, and one of the, how, what is the American culture? How does the American culture help the immune system? When you have the individualism that exists in this country, if you don't exaggerate it, it's very good for the immune system because the individual is allowed to be praised in a, in a, in a job or to be praised, and, and it also depends on the level you accept. But the, the U.S. is a very individualistic country, as opposed to Japan, who is a very collectivist country. So what happens in Japan? In Japan, you are uh, working somewhere, and somebody comes to you, your boss comes to you and says, uh, Tammy, you've done a great job, and you have to say, in essence, I'm nothing without my group. That's not good for the immune system. You're disowning the effort and the work and everything that you've done so you cannot acknowledge. You have to um, disown whatever action you took and give it to your, to your group. And in fact, when shaming occurs in, in the U.S., you feel ashamed because of something you did, and you feel the inflammation because of something you did. In Japan or other Asian countries, you feel the shame for your group, not for yourself. And it's even worse because you're disowning the process. You're, you're not embodying it. It's like I'm not feeling it for myself. I'm feeling it for them. That's even worse. So those are examples of how it works. Now, if you take individualism too far, then it becomes narcissistic. If you take collectivism too far, then it becomes totalitarian. So, so it's, a, it's kind of a... A, a range, but but in, those are examples of how culture can actually help or hurt a uh, an immune system. That's good. That's very clarifying. I just have one final question for you, Mario. And you know, I have to say, talking to you, you always present things from a very surprising perspective. You always say things that catch me off guard and are new, and I really appreciate that about you. I, I have the sense that you're really presenting an original body of work that you're coming from your experience. Yes, it is, because, uh, because actually biocognition, it's, it's a convergence of fields that are not talking to each other with their discoveries. Cultural anthropology, psychoneurology, and neuroscience, they're not talking to each other with the discoveries that have very powerful effect if you converge them. So biocognition is a convergence of fields that are not speaking to each other. And then I just have one final question for you, knowing that you'll uh, say something here that I'm not expecting, which is I know in some of your more recent work, you're talking about how we can navigate chaos in our life. And you talk about how we can navigate chaos with uncertainty as our guide. And you introduce an idea that you call the drift and I wonder, as a last conversational point, if you can explain to us what you mean by the drift and how we can possibly navigate the chaos of our lives with uncertainty as our guide. Okay. That, that's uh, one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> um, uh, actually, you have to navigate, I think, uncertainty with, with, with chaos, uh, and chaos and, and uncertainty are related. Why? Because we have linear ways of looking at the world. The world's not linear. We just impose linearity on the world because that's how the brain works. If, if we didn't have linearity, we couldn't focus on, any, on anything. But it doesn't mean that there's no um, other complexity going on. And complexity theory can explain things better than Newtonian sequential linear processes, reductionist processes. So what happens? You, you want to go from A to B. That's linear. And all of a sudden, turbulence comes in. And what do we do? We try to impose a linear system of confirming, confirming, confirming. Immediately you stop there. Again, you embody what is this doing to me. And you move from a mode of confirming to a mode of observing. And you observe with a premise that says there is implicit wisdom here that I need to extract from the moment. This implicit wisdom that I need to extract from the moment. Not only does it take you out of reducing cortisol because you're all, you know, all uptight, but it tells you there's an implicit wisdom here that since everything is interconnected, if I find that wisdom, synchronicity all of a sudden comes in. And I'll give you a very specific example so you can see how, because I, I practice it. And I'll also give you a way that you can start doing it and it'll come out more frequently in your life. I had to go to a lecture in St. Lucia in the Caribbean a few years ago. I didn't know anybody there. It was an interesting lecture because it was for bishops and cardinals about the psychoneurology 
of, of uh, confessing <laughs> for Catholic cardinals and, and bishops. So um, I get there, and one of the bishops is supposed to be picking me up. I see, that's a linear thing I'm expecting. And all of a sudden, the bishop's not there. And I go, I don't know anybody here. I don't even know where they're having their conference. Then chaos comes in. Um, you begin to secrete cortisol. All kinds of things happen. So I stop and said, okay, let me breathe. And let me look at things that are familiar to me. See, instead of confirming, you're observing. What's familiar to me? Okay, I've seen palm trees, and I've seen, uh, uh, I've seen sand, and I've seen uh, uh, people of, of a different race. All right. And I start looking around, looking for the wisdom that's there that I have to extract. All of a sudden, I see this, this uh, taxi driver smiling. I said, oh, I go up to him. And I said, look, I'm having this and this happening. And he said, oh, my cousin... And she, the cousin is working at the tourism information. Synchronicity begins already. Uh, maybe he can tell you. So I go out there. I'm, I'm already relaxing because I'm, I'm allowing myself to observe the wisdom within the moment. And she goes up, and I, I go up to her, and I, and I tell her what's going on. She said, well, I don't know, but let me call one of the nuns here. They, the nuns know everything that's going on here. So she calls, and the nun tells her, and she says, oh, my God, that's on the other side of the island. Again, Another linear turbulence. I get tense again, but I stop, I breathe, I do the same thing again, and I ask myself, what is the wisdom here? And I said, okay, which way can we go? And immediately she says to, to her cousin, don't take him the long way and don't rip him off. Take him through the rainforest so he can see the beautiful birds that we have. Another synchronicity. He does that. He takes me to the place. I get there, and I find out that the bishop couldn't pick me up because he had to pick up the cardinal and the cardinal's more important than the psychologist. So what happened? I didn't bring my blood pressure up. I was able to connect with someone, and I was able to go to, through the most beautiful rainforest. If I had gone through that sequential imposing confirmation on that, I would have been fighting out there and getting upset. And You see how, how, how it works. It's, it's, a, it's a process of observation. Now, how, do you wanna, how can you create uh, synchronicity and, and getting into the drift? Try it and you'll see. Simply do what I call feed forward. Uh, feedback, you know, gives you information from the past. Feed forward is information from the future. And that sounds almost like Star Trek, but you'll see in a second. Um, get yourself ready to go out to dinner. And I always talk about dinner because that's the most powerful ritual that you can do for the immune system, dinner with somebody or dinner by yourself. And, and you and your friend or you and your, by yourself decide that you're going to go to a restaurant and you make reservations and you plan to go to a restaurant. You get to the restaurant, and you go to the maitre d', and you tell them, I changed my mind. I'm not going to this restaurant. Right there, the drift starts. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where you're going to go. You don't know where you're going to have dinner. And then that is nonlinear, because you're, you've created self-turbulence, but you're trusting that something's going to happen. It doesn't have to be significant. A very small thing has wisdom, and it may come out today. It may come out tomorrow because nonlinearity is not immediate. It has in the long run effect. And every time I do that, I'm, I'm amazed myself with the things that I find. And I amaze myself with, again, confirming that the world is nonlinear, that this tremendous information and the tremendous possible things that are going on, that when they come together, we call it synchronicity. But it's, synchronicity is always there. We just don't know how to go into the portals. And that's the drift. That's a simple example to the many, many... Now, now, Mario, one quick question. You said going out to dinner or going out to dinner by yourself or with somebody that you love is one of the most powerful things you can do for the immune system. So I'm curious, why is that? Well, because that comes from the cave. It has a, it has a very powerful survival uh, point. In the caves, you had to go and have your dinner there, not only to have your dinner, but to talk about where the, uh, where the, the tigers were and and where the food is, and, and where the other tribe is. So it had a, a very uh, powerful effect, not only of sharing the food, which is actually uh, important and, and, and fundamental, but you were sharing information that had a survival and conservation component. So that's built in your, to, your, to your gene pool. And then gradually you build that and you build that, and what happens? We've lost that. We don't, we don't have dinner with our friends anymore. We have dinner with our television and our iPads. And it doesn't work. That, that doesn't work that way. In fact, I'll give you an example, a real quick example, because I know we're getting to the end. A study was done to look at why is it that some people 
who have alcoholic parents don't develop uh, alcoholism. And the, the usual thing is that, that it's five times as much and all that. The factor that they found was that these people, although they had alcoholic parents, they still had dinner together. That, that alone was a factor. Mm-hmm. Well, very factor. interesting, and I'm very happy to know that something that I do often and that I like to do, which is to go out to dinner, is good for my immune system. I'm finding that a, a positive note Absolutely. Here. And just one final question. Absolutely. I'm going to just try to wrap this all up, Mario, by That's commenting okay. that, you know, it's unusual to talk to somebody both about empowerment, setting goals, having enough self-worthiness that change can come into our life, and at the same time to talk about something called the drift, where we allow ourselves to open to the unknown experience of the moment and where the future might be calling us. And I'm wondering how you put this together, how you put together the chaos of the moment and yet this desire that we have to be empowered in our lives and to set goals. How does that all come together for you? <laughs> you always come up with great questions. <laughs> that, that's a very, very important question. By uh, tuning into the variables of the two, what's, what are, the, what are the, the conditions for linear and what are the conditions for nonlinear? The linear conditions are predictable. You go from A to B and you can predict and you go here and you go there. The moment something breaks, especially if you get upset, that's an indication for potential wisdom, an indication for going into the drift. But you have to trust it because I, I, I have always found that eventually it has wisdom, but you can't expect the wisdom in the moment, and you can't look for it because if you're looking for it, you get linear. You have to let it come into you and humble you with the discovery. So the, the key is to find when something is out of order, that's a potential for the portal of the drift. I love it. I've been talking with Mario Martinez. He's created a six-session audio learning course with Sounds True, which is a type of underground bestseller. Word is out about the popularity and the effectiveness and the depth of this program. It's called the Mind-Body Code, how the mind wounds and heals the body. And always talking to Mario, as I said, I learned something new and something unexpected. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Tammy. Mario Martinez at SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm